Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 99th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is the undercover millennial. I'm joined by Clint Pulver. He is the author of I Love It Here, How Great Leaders Create Organizations Their People Never Want to Leave. The publisher is Page Two Books. Clint is an Emmy award-winning speaker, a.k.a. the uncover, undercover millennial. He's also a musician, a pilot, a workforce expert whose specialty is employee retention. As a professional drummer, he's appeared in feature films and on America's Got Talent. Welcome to the show, Clint. Hey, thanks, Dan. I appreciate it. It's nice to be here. Oh, I think this will be fascinating stuff. So give us a brief overview of uh, your book, if you will. Yeah, for the last five and a half years, I've traveled uh, the country as the undercover millennial. It's kind of like undercover boss without the makeup. Uh, I would go <laughs> undercover into organizations as a young person who was looking for a job. And I would simply walk in uh, with a backwards hat and some Nikes and just regular clothes and walk up to the first person that I saw. And I would just say, hey, I'm just thinking about applying here. I'm just looking for work. Would you recommend it? And the employee, they always get quiet. You know, they kind of start to look around. It feels like an illegal drug exchange. <laughs> and then they sure. tell me everything, everything, uh, what they love, what they don't love, what they would recommend. You know, they're, they're honest thoughts because I'm not an employee survey. I'm not a manager. I'm just a potential hire. And in creating an environment where employees could speak their truth, we were able to capture a perspective that most managers don't have because there's there's really no incentive, if you think about it, Dan, there's no incentive for an employee to really speak their truth to a leader, especially when they're dissatisfied, especially when they're not happy. Instead, most of the time, the employee just leaves uh, three weeks, three months later, and it leaves the manager sitting there scratching their head going, I never saw it coming. Or, man, it's just so hard to find good workers or people that even want to work today. And really the question 
became apparent that, you know, maybe it's not so much that people don't want to work as, as it is, do they want to work for you? And yes. <laughs> we've worked with 181 organizations and over 10,000 employees that have been interviewed undercover. And the magic of the research was when an employee would say while talking to them, I love it here. I love the yeah, job. Well, yeah, well, I have to say it's a refreshing book and it's candid. It's extremely well written. And just right away, it, it sees me with the, the premise that uh, we need to go on deeper, better to understand what's going on, what's the experience for employees and get to that honesty. So I, I've got to ask you, I mean, you know, you, you uh, hit it on the nail as far as I'm concerned. You say that the well-intentioned, homogenized, fill-in-the-bubble, you know, survey, which doesn't really get you home. How have the HR people responded when you've made that characterization or maybe you haven't made that characterization to them? I think it's important. I think there's there's kind of some of the older tradition of, okay, before we hire somebody, I want you to take this survey or I need to identify what color you are. Or are you an ENFT or are you an HIJKLMNOP, right? There's this, this kind of uh, old school metho- methodology, if you, if you will, uh, of how we would almost categorize people. Um, And I saw that used a lot in organizations. And I wanted to capture something different. Um, I write in the book how I kind of steer away from from that. And and that organizations, when we can try not to do this one-size-fits-all approach or this generalized, take this test, it'll spit out a result, and then it will tell me who you are as a person – if we can if we can maybe change our perspective on that a little bit and dive into a realm where let's get to know the person let's have time with the person let's communicate with the person let's ask relevant questions that will that will help the person feel safe enough to where they can actually tell you honestly what they really think I, yeah no yeah yeah no I, I like all that I, I like the safety the authenticity you, you mentioned you know you wanted real data I do have to ask you the one question on the methodology you, you mentioned that sometimes you do use a camera or an undercover camera did did that change the dynamics at all did they feel safe did you have to work a little bit extra hard to make sure they then would feel safe once the camera was an element or they didn't know about it. Yeah. The camera was never seen the camera. So I would use an undercover. So it's a, an undercover camera that was in a pen, the top of like a pen. And then I'd have another (laughs) lapel camera that would be hidden as well. So the employees never knew that they were filmed if we were filming. And then we would change the employees voices and we would always blot out the employees faces and it was only used if it was a bigger organization and there was literally zero chance of any employee being identified. Because, again, the goal okay. is not to, you know, it's not to figure out who needs to be fired or who needs to be <laughs> exactly. promoted. Yes. It was just let's let's get the truth and then show it in a powerful way that invokes positive change. Okay. No, I like that. Although I, I met with the pen, I feel like I'm talking to James Bond a little bit here. Um, but that that's cool. That's good. Um, so, you know, it's been in the headlines a lot. I'm sure you've got your own perspective on it. Um, the Great Resignation. I, I get asked this question a lot, you know, from people like, what's going on? What's spurring this? I do have my own perspective, but I'd like to hear yours first. Yeah, I think really. And uh, we've done research uh, during the pandemic uh, with 47 different organizations. And really, what we've seen is that employees have two things on their minds right now. Number one, most of them remember what what happened in 2020. They remember how they were treated. Uh, I saw some pretty horrific things that leaders did. I also saw some beautiful things that leaders did. 
during a time of chaos. And the point is they, they all remember and they, you know, they saw how many people got furloughed. They saw where the priorities really, really were when things got difficult. They saw just unique changes and different perspectives in leadership that they hadn't seen before. Uh, the second thing is all employees have had time to think, Dan, they, the, 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 the pandemic, that first, you know, 2020, when everything really stopped, it shook people out of the routine and people started thinking, my goodness, is, is this really where I want to be? Am I going to be here in three months from now? And then all of a sudden, this dynamic changed where people started realizing, oh my gosh, I can I can live in Colorado and work in New York City and make three times as much, work four days a week whenever I want. And all of a sudden, there was just this, this different conversation. And people are thinking, does my job today look the same as it did in 2019? And it, it really changed a perspective where employees all of a sudden had a lot of options. There was a lot of furloughing. There was a lot of layoffs. There was a lot of fear. There was a lot of change that occurred. And then as we've slowly started to rebuild, that change is still in effect. And employees remember that. And they're seeing things differently. And you literally can throw a stone still to this day and, and hit a business that is looking for people that is striving to find and 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 retain good talent in today's market. And so it's really been a unique perspective and 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 change in our our in our in our country in the world uh, especially when it comes to employee retention. Yeah, no, I, I like that answer a lot. I just I would add one extra thing is that give them time to think. I would say give them time to feel. Also, gave them time to ponder because, you know, if the job, they're classified as an essential worker. On the other hand, does the work feel essential to them? Does it have meaning? Do they feel valued? I mean, that that to me was all these things that trip out of, you know, what we've been going through in this chaos. So I'm I'm curious. I mean, you do mention the book that you spent two years on behalf of the church uh, out doing, you know, work. Uh, I assume, therefore, you are from Utah, a Mormon. Does that inform how, because it, it seems you are indeed very people-centered and in the most wonderful way, and I'm wondering if that experience in the church and in your mission has had any influence on how you, you approach things. Absolutely. I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I served as a missionary for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and uh, for two years uh, was in Idaho knocking on doors and meeting unique and different people from all over the world in all different walks of life, and Man, my church and my faith, and it has been a single-handedly one of the greatest blessings in my life and has helped me to capture perspective to see uh, people as a Christian the way that Christ would see them and to treat people in the way that Christ would treat them and to just empathize and to 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 love others the way that, that he did. It, it's, it's done nothing but uh, be a positive uh, thing for me and, and hopefully others as I uh, have been in their lives. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. The, the empathy, the compassion. I guess it also helped get you accustomed to walking up to strangers or near strangers and launching into conversations. Exactly. Yeah. Trying to have, you know, be, be okay in the uncomfortable. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Sure. So, so you mentioned one point, I don't want to make this a whole uh, episode about uh, generational differences, but um, there was a comment fairly early on in the book that got my attention. You said, young workers today aren't afraid to leave, which leads me to think, okay, so does that mean it's different for other generations? Um, Because you say, you know, workers today want a job to be fair. It needs to be a win-win situation. 
do you you see you know surely you've interviewed people who aren't you know only millennials themselves so yes. i'm wondering if you have any perspectives on how that looks different by by generation yeah one thing that i have really noticed and have tried to really emphasize especially in the book i i, I didn't want the book to be a, a book on just millennials or just gen z or just the boomer generation i wanted it to be a book about people and when, it, when we talk about generations i've strived to not so much talk about the generation as much as just talk about the individual because in my research <clears throat> dan i found millennials who were entitled, who were lazy, who were, you know, just advance me. I don't want to work for it. But I also found millennials who were incredibly loyal, hardworking, talented, understood the, the game of patience. Uh, and so I don't know. I, I think sometimes in our industry, Dan, we find people, whether they're a speaker, an author, or a writer, where they, it's kind of even in the marketing of it is this is the five tips to to recruit and retain yes, and yes. keep millennials <laughs> or the, the seven yep. things that every Gen Z employee wants. And I look at that as a, 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 a flaw, a fallacy, and especially uh, when when leaders read that and then they think that, okay, well, I've got young employees and I read some Forbes article, so this must be the way I need to treat people. And there is no generational hack. There is no one-size-fits-all approach. Um, and so it's it's hard to speak in terms of, well, this is what the generation is, and so this is what the generation will do. Um, I found that to be more open to fallacy and misdiagnosis uh, than it is proper diagnosis. Um, now, yes, okay. I will say sure. as well, though, there are, there are, you know, Gen Z, they've grown up in a world that is very different than what the baby boomer would grow up in. Um, but again, there's so much depth to a person and their perspective. Um, instead of looking at them as a generation, strive to look at them as, as a person. Um, I, I'm perfectly comfortable with that answer. Yes. The, the one size fits all is, is not a, a great approach. Doesn't get you to the depth and authenticity that you're you're striving for here today. I mean, I have noticed there was just an article the other day was they said, okay, the great resignation, there's also the great retirement. Yes. Uh, that a lot of boomers are, are saying this is the moment to get out. Any comments on that front? Yeah, I think we're seeing that. I think some are, are you know, they're fed up with the situation or they've been the person that's been in this, this, uh, certain situation where they're, they're not fulfilled, right? It's just the job that I've got and I'm getting a paycheck and I'm living for Friday. And I've, you know, if they have a pension, great. If they, if they, they don't, then it's just, I, this is where I've been and this is where I'm going to stay. And I'm just on my way out. And now with everything that we've seen during with COVID and the disruption, and some people are like, I'm out early, I'm done. Or things have changed to a point where this is not the same job that I had in 2019. And so there's, there's, I think there's so many different factors that are playing into a lot of people just saying, I want to, I'm out, I'm done. Sure. So going back to, um, you know, why we were having the great resignation, you mentioned, you know, how people were treated. So let, let's go to leaders and I suppose even managers, therefore, you know, offer a perspective on why people do tend to leave. I mean, you have some pretty strong statistics as well as, uh, understandings in the book. So I, I want to make sure we work that into the interview here. Yeah, I, I, I think it really, the first thing that the foundation is, is, is leadership and management. I, I mean, when an employee hated their job, when I would go in undercover and they just talked about how miserable they were or how dissatisfied what they were or how frustrated they were, how stressed they were. 
literally almost every time I could trace that back to management in some way, shape, or form. When an employee hated their job, most of the time they would talk about a manager. But but when I when I heard an employee who loved their job, and, and really that was the focus of the book. I wanted the book to be a solution-based book, not a book that just talked about problems, a book that talked about solutions and then provided yep. actionable ideas on how a leader could obtain that. And, and so when they, when employees loved their job, when they, they talked about this influence that was significant, they usually talked about a mentor and, and this mentor mentality that really was a unique discovery because sometimes in our industry, Dan, we talk about management or you talk about leadership. Like those are the two different dynamics. And I found this middle ground of mentorship that really wasn't leadership and it wasn't management because mentorship had to be earned. We give leadership titles out all the time. We give management titles out all the time. <laughs> yep. but, but mentorship, you choose that. You cannot become a mentor until the mentee invites you into their heart. And, and I really loved that. I found that so powerful. And when it came to the perspective of the employee, that's what they talked about. Those were the people they cherished, uh, didn't just work for. No, no, that's a great way to do, I guess, in effect, diagram it to say that there's this middle ground and this another opportunity, not just door number one and door number two. Um, that's really, that's that's good stuff. Um, with leaders, with managers, with um, mentors, any place you want to go just in terms of what you think are some of the the attributes, the qualities that they bring that does make it work. The book, after all, is titled, you know, I love it here, which means obviously some of these leaders and mentors and managers are doing it well, uh, as opposed to other statistics I've seen where, God forbid, there's way too many managers who are, are bullies or not terribly good at the EQ part of their job. Yeah. Usually when we would talk about traditional leadership, like the traditional definition of leadership, it would be someone who's at the helm of the ship and you're casting out the vision. This is where we're going. This is the direction. And you're a leader if you can get people to follow you, right? Uh, where are we going? Yep. Where are we headed? You're the leader in that vision. Now, management is about making sure that the ship moves effectively and efficiently through the water. How can we get there faster? How can we get there more effectively? But mentorship through the lens of the employee, was all about taking care of people on the ship. Mentorship was really more so about advocacy than it was about development. And one thing I learned really quickly, Dan, is every employee, in some way, shape, or form, they're always asking this of their employer. Let me know. Let me know when you and the company gets to the part about me. <laughs> yes. And sometimes we hear that as leaders and we think, well, those entitled little shining stars in my life, right? Like, yes. Oh, if I hear an employee say, let me know when it gets to the part about me. But that is the dialogue that leaders right now, especially in our current economic state, are, are understanding that's everything. If you want people, if you want people to stay, if you want people to thrive, if you want people to be loyal, then as an organization, we've got to think in that mentality of how do I make the deposits of trust? How do I get to the part about you? Because when I can do that, then that allows me to make the withdrawals. That allows me to increase the standards. And, and in our research, Dan, we found that there really were two variables that, that were the determining factors to whether somebody was satisfied or dissatisfied with a manager. 
and it was standards and connection. Every every great manager will have standards. I need you to show up on time. We, we've got safety regulations. We've got rules. We've got mandates. We've got a, a, an organizational vision. We've got customer service guidelines. Those would be standards. <laughs> but the, the connection piece is more on the intangible side, the things that we can't really measure, the things that we don't always see. But 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 it's 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 about empathy it's about realizing that an employee has a life outside of work and, and so those two variables and and if uh, for example we found four different types of managers in every organization yeah well, i wanted i wanted to go there cuz it's, it's a great list take us through them if you would and i'd also be curious which emotions you think they tend to show a characteristic of them perhaps and which ones which emotions they they create in others who have to deal with them absolutely so the first manager that we found was the removed manager. Yep. And this is like this sluggish, removed, just not even – I don't know if you'd say depressed, but they're just not happy. They're kind of in the organization, but they're not into the organization. So they're, they're low on standards and they're also low on connection. They have the mentality of like, I don't really care if you show up on time. Just do your job. Don't complain to me. I just don't even – I don't care about what you did on the weekend. Just Just do your job. So this created a sense of disengagement from the employee. Yes. So they That's almost became removed yep. as well. The second well, one. I, I can remember one time, just before we could jump into yeah. the other three, I was I flew in. The plane was much delayed. I landed at Newark about uh, almost midnight. I'm in the rental car place. There's a line of like 15 of us waiting to get our cars. There is one person at the desk, but we can see the managers off in the corner pretending they don't see the, li- the line of us all. Yep. And finally, on behalf of all of us, I said to the person behind me, hold my place in line if you don't mind. And I went over to the manager and said, really, can't you come out of your office and help your customers who would all like to go to bed soon? Exactly. And the person did come. So anyway, sorry to interrupt you. So th- that's removed. It sounds like they might almost be given to a little bit of sadness, whether they realize it or not, because they're they're isolated. Correct. But let's go on to the other one. Correct. That's a great, that's a great example, Dan. Um, the, the second one was the buddy manager. So this is a manager that's low on standards but they were really high on connection. So this is the manager. They wanted to be liked more than they were respected. They didn't want to ruffle feathers. They didn't want to make anybody feel sad. They don't want to, you know, put in boundaries and talk about, you know, they just don't want to make, they don't want to upset anybody. They want everybody to like them. And and there's, they're well-intended individuals, but what this created was almost a sense of entitlement because the manager or the leader, they become the homie, they become the friend, they become this <laughs> yes. colleague, not a leader. And so when standards needed to be upheld or enforced, there was always this pushback of, oh, come on, we're friends. Or you're, come on, you're the guy that we, I just went and played, you know, Xbox on the weekend with. And now what? Now you're my boss? And so it just, it just never, it worked. It, it's where really the employees become more of the boss than the boss did. The, the third manager was the controller and honestly probably yeah, the most – ang- It makes me think of anger because anger is often about wanting to control or direct, but yep. Exactly, exactly. And so they are high on standards, low on connection. And you would see the anger. You would see this fear-based mentality, this do, do what I tell you to do and if you don't, I will fire you. Fear-based manipulation. This is my way or the highway. I, I show you that I love you because I give you a paycheck. Smile. Tomorrow's going to be worse. (laughs) Just wild, a wild mentality that ultimately in the employee experience, Dan, created rebellion. 
Yeah. It created pushback. These are the managers that wanted to go shoulder or excuse me, head to head with every employee instead of going shoulder to shoulder. Um, so it did get results though from time to time, but those results never lasted. Never yeah, lasted. makes sense. Yeah, eventually the slave's going to revolt. That's right. Yeah. You got it. And then so that leads us to number 4, which really was the magic and and the foundation of the book and and what started um it really was the first thing that I captured in the research, and it's what I call the mentor manager. They were this individual that people, they liked themselves best when they were with them. And and they were high on standards, but they were also equally as high on connection. They understood that I got to get to the part about you, and I need you to know that I'm here as the advocate. I'm here to support you. Now, yes, there's also an objective. There's something that I want you to become. There's things that I need you to be, but it was always in the sense of I'm going to communicate your potential and worth so well to the point that you see it within yourself. And it created this empowering dynamic that people just loved. I mean, you you look at your own life, Dan, and I, I guarantee you remember, you know, the the teachers, the one or two educators in your life that made a difference for you. Or, or, sure, or or our first boss who was frankly wonderful, and I, I only when I got to the second and third did I realize how wonderful the first one was. Absolutely, and and you never forget them, right? And I guarantee you, nope. you, it's because they were they were a mentor in your life. They were somebody that that truly connected you to your dreams. They saw something in you. They advocated for that, and it was a, a beautiful combination. Um, and it was fun to write that out, and it's been it's been great to see as the book has continued to grow in 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 its readership, to see how many people have appreciated that outline, because it gives you something to look at. It gives you you know this sense of okay, where am I? Am I the controller? Uh, oh, man, I've been the buddy. Yep. Some people are like, I'm all four in one day. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the goal is to is to be that mentor to earn that opportunity that you get to be called that by other people. Yeah, no, it sounds a bit like tough love, but more emphasis on love than the tough part. But uh, the toughness is still there to make sure the standards are met. That's right. So that's right. I, I think I, I think I get it. So of course, if you're an expert in retention, not everyone does get retained, and then you have to start the 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 cycle over the wheel. You have to keep churning. Any ad advice or insights you've seen in terms of how the job interview and the onboarding typically gets handled? versus what's actually productive to to make those things hum better. Yeah, there was lots of things that I saw. I mean, I dedicated a whole chapter in the book to this on on just simply hiring, right? Because this this you idea did. of mentorship and how to retain people and communicate possibilities, all of that's somewhat void if you don't have the right person in your organization. Right? If we yeah. made a bad hire that's just not a good fit, that's they're removed themselves, they don't want to be there. There's no investment. They're you know, you hire somebody that, to work at a pet store that hates animals, like that that's gonna be a problem. <laughs> and so yes. so so really it's how do we identify that? But also there was there was this really unique mentality that I found in great leaders that created great teams was this this mentality of they were always recruiting, always recruiting. It didn't matter if they had a full staff, they would always be recruiting at a business social or at, a, at an event or even as they were out shopping or on vacation. If they found good people, good talent, they were always striving to recruit them. They would have things on their website like this position's filled, but if you feel like you're a good fit, we still want to talk to you. 
We still want to, because turnover will naturally happen in all yeah. organizations for many different reasons. And sometimes it's not just because you're a bad organization. Maybe someone's retiring. Maybe they just want a different chapter in their life. Maybe they've, they've developed a different interest. There's so, there's so many different reasons. So the point is, is can we, can we always be recruiting? Can we create a dream team, a, a list of potential hires that we can go to, that we can recruit, that we can actively be engaging with? So when those opportunities arise, which they always will, then it sets you up for better success. You have a working list that remains active that then you're not, you're not hiring out of necessity. You're hiring by design. And man, that, that's a, that's a powerful concept. Well, and it reduces the fear because I think in the typical job interview, you're afraid you're not going to get the job and the person hiring is afraid they're making the wrong choice. But I thought one of the most powerful things you said in that chapter was, you know, don't forget the ABCs and you were as interested in character as you were in the skills they brought because it will be awfully hard to change their character. But the skill set you can make the adjustments to more readily. You got it. Yeah. Well, I I used to be on a uh, uh, soccer team and we – you know, you had two women on the field at any given time and three guys. And we had so many, we, we weren't necessarily trying to recruit, but the women who were on the other team saw how we treated the women on our team, which meant we included them. And boy, we had a lot of people who wanted to join our team because that just wasn't happening on their team. Um, people talk, uh, people talk, you know? Yeah. And they observe. Absolutely. And they, they, they pick up the clues, they pick up the signals. So I, I want to thank you so much, Clint. This has been a, a wonderful conversation. This has also been episode number 99, The Undercover Millennial. Clint Pulver is the author of I Love It Here, How Great Leaders Create Organizations Their People Never Want to Leave. If you enjoyed today's show, please get a rating or review on iTunes. You can find other episodes by going to my company's website at the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com or to New Books Network and type in Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, and you'll find the other episodes there. Finally, I like to conclude every episode with an epigram. In this case, there's a quote from Clint's book that I couldn't resist. It comes from one of my favorites, Oscar Wilde, who in this case said, to live is the rarest thing in the world. Most people exist. That is all. Until next time, take care and be well. Mm-hmm.